0: The Lit English, English Lit Podcast presents Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, read for you by Jonathan St. John. Episode 6, Volume 2, Chapters 12 through 18. Chapter 12. Elizabeth awoke the next morning to the same thoughts and meditations which had at length closed her eyes. She could not yet recover from the surprise of what had happened. It was impossible to think of anything else, and totally indisposed for employment, she resolved soon after breakfast to indulge herself in air and exercise. She was proceeding directly to her favourite walk when the recollection of Mr Darcy's sometimes coming there stopped her Instead of entering the park, she turned up the lane, which led her farther from the turnpike road. The park paling was still the boundary on one side, and she soon passed one of the gates into the ground. After walking two or three times along that part of the lane, she was tempted, by the pleasantness of the morning, to stop at the gates and look into the park. The five weeks which she had now passed in Kent had made a great difference in the country, and every day was adding to the verdure of the early trees she was on the point of continuing her walk. when She caught a glimpse of a gentleman within the sort of grove which edged the park. He was moving that way and fearful of of its being Mr. Darcy, she was directly retreating. But the person who advanced was now near enough to see her and stepping forward with eagerness pronounced her name. She had turned away, but on hearing herself called, though in a voice which proved it to me, Mr. Darcy, she moved again toward the gate. He had by that time reached it also, and holding out a letter, which she instinctively took, said, with a look of haughty composure, I have been walking in the grove some time in the hope of meeting you. Will you do me the honour of reading that letter? And then, with a slight bow, turned again into the plantation and was soon out of sight. With no expectation of pleasure, but with the strongest curiosity, Elizabeth opened the letter and, to her still-increasing wonder, perceived an envelope containing two sheets of letter paper, written quite through in a very close hand. The envelope itself was likewise full. Pursuing her way along the lane, she then began it. It was dated from Rosings at eight o'clock in the morning, and was as follows. Be not alarmed, madam, on receiving this letter, by the apprehension of its containing any repetition of those sentiments or renewal of those offers which were last night so disgusting to you. I write without any intention of paining you or humbling myself by dwelling on wishes, which, for the happiness of both, cannot be too soon forgotten. And the effort which the formation and the perusal of this letter must occasion should have been spared, had not my character required it to be written and read. You must therefore pardon the freedom with which I demand your attention. Your feelings I know will bestow it unwillingly, but I demand it of your justice. Two offences of a very different nature and by no means of equal magnitude, you last night laid to my charge. The first mentioned was that, regardless of the sentiments of either, I had detached Mr Bingley from your sister, and the other, that I had in defiance of various claims, in defiance of honour and humanity, ruined the immediate prosperity and blasted the prospects of Mr Wickham. Willfully and wantonly to have thrown off the companion of my youth, the acknowledged favourite of my father, a young man who had scarcely any other dependence than on our patronage, and who had been brought up to expect, ex- expect its exertion, would be a depravity to which the separation of two young persons, whose affection could be the growth of only a few weeks, could bear no comparison. But From the severity of that blame which was last night so liberally bestowed, respecting each circumstance, I shall hope to be in future secured when the following account of my actions and their motives has been read. If, in the explanation of them, which is due to myself, I am under the necessity of relating feelings which may be offensive to yours, I can only say that I am sorry. The necessity must be obeyed. and Father apology would be absurd. I had not been long in Hertfordshire before I saw, in common with others, that Bingley preferred your eldest sister to any other young woman in the country but it was not till the evening of the dance at Netherfield that I had any apprehension of his feeling a serious attachment. I had often seen him in love before. At that ball, while I had the honour of dancing with you, I was first made acquainted by Sir William Lucas's accidental information that Bingley's attentions to your sister had given rise to a general expectation of their marriage. He spoke of it as a certain event, of which the time alone could be undecided. From that moment I observed my friend's behaviour attentively. I could then perceive that his partiality for Miss Bennet was beyond what I had ever witnessed in him. Your sister I also watched. Her look and manners were open, cheerful and engaging as ever, but without any symptom of peculiar regard, and I remained convinced from the evening's scrutiny that though she received his attentions with pleasure, she did not invite them by any participation of sentiment. If you have not been mistaken here, I must have been in error. Your superior knowledge of your sister must make the latter probable. If it be so, if I've been misled by such an error to inflict pain on her, your resentment has not been unreasonable. But I shall not scruple to assert that the serenity of your sister's countenance and air was such as might have given her the most acute, was was such as might have given the most acute observer a conviction that, however amiable her temper, her heart was not likely to be easily touched. That I was desirous that I was desirous of believing her indifferent is certain. But I will venture to say that my investigations and decisions are not usually influenced by my hopes or fears. I did not believe her to be indifferent because I wished it, I believed it on impartial conviction, as truly I wished it in reason. My objections to the marriage were not merely those which I last night acknowledged to have required the utmost force of passion to put aside in my own case. The want of connection could not be so great an evil to my friend as to me. But there were other causes of repugnance, causes which though still existing, and existing to an equal degree in both instances, I had myself endeavoured to forget, because they were not immediately before me. These causes must be stated though briefly. The situation of your mother's family, though objectionable, was nothing in comparison of that total want of propriety so frequently, almost uniformly betrayed by herself, by your three younger sisters, and occasionally even by your father. Pardon me. It pains me to offend you. But amidst your concern for the defects of your nearest relations and your displeasure at this representation of them, let it give you consolation to consider that to have conducted yourself so as to avoid any share of the like censure is praise no less generally bestowed on you and your eldest sister than it is honourable to the sense and disposition of both. I will only say, Father, that, that from what passed that evening, my opinion of all parties was confirmed, and every inducement heightened, which could have led me before to preserve my friend from what I esteemed a most unhappy connection. He left Netherfield for London on the following day, as you, I am certain, remember, with a design of soon returning. The part which I acted is now to be explained. His sister's uneasiness had been equally excited with my own. Our coincidence of feeling was soon discovered, and, alike sensible that no time was to be lost in detaching their brother, we shortly resolved on joining him directly in London. We accordingly went... And there I readily engaged in the office of pointing out to my friend the certain evils of such a choice. I described and enforced them earnestly. But, however this remonstrance might have staggered or delayed his determination, I do not suppose that it would ultimately have prevented the marriage had it not been seconded by the assurance, which I hesitated not in giving, of your sister's indifference. He had before believed her to return his affection with sincere, if not with equal regard. But Bingley has great natural modesty, with a stronger dependence on my judgment than his own. To convince him, therefore, that he had deceived himself was no very difficult point. To persuade him again, returning into Hertfordshire, when that conviction had been given, was scarcely the work of a moment. I cannot blame myself having done thus much. There is but one part of my conduct in the whole affair on which I do not reflect with satisfaction. It is that I condescended to adopt the measures of art so far as to conceal from him your sisters being in town. I knew it myself, as it was known to miss Bingley, but her brother is even yet ignorant of it. That they might have met without ill consequence is perhaps probable, but his regard did not appear to me enough extinguished for him to see her without some danger. Perhaps this concealment, this disguise, was beneath me. It is done, however, and it was done for the best. On this subject, I have nothing more to say, no other apology to offer. If I have wounded your sister's feelings, it was unknowingly done, and though the motives which governed me may to you very naturally appear insufficient, I have not yet learnt to condemn them. With respect to that other, more weighty accusation of having injured Mr Wickham, I can only refute it by laying before you the whole of his connection with my family. Of what he has particularly accused me, I am ignorant. But of the truth of what I shall relate, I can summon more than one witness of undoubted veracity. Mr. Wickham is the son of a very respectable man, who had for many years the management of all the Pemberley estates, and whose good conduct in the discharge of his trust naturally inclined my father to be of service to him, and on George Wickham, who was his godson, his kindness was therefore liberally bestowed. My father supported him at school, and afterwards at Cambridge. Most important assistance, as his own father, always poor from the extravagance of his wife, would have been unable to give him a gentleman's education. My father was not only fond of this young man's society, whose manners were always engaging, he had also the highest opinion of him, and hoping the church would be his profession, intended to provide for him in it. As for myself, it is many, many years since I first began to think of him in a very different manner. The vicious propensities, The want of principle, which he was careful to guard from the knowledge of his best friend, could not escape the observation of a young man of nearly the same age with himself, and who had opportunities of seeing him in unguarded moments, which Mr. Darcy could not have. Here again, I shall give you pain, to what degree you only can tell. But whatever may be the sentiments which Mr. Wickham has created, a suspicion of their nature shall not prevent me from unfolding his real character. It adds even another motive. My excellent father died about five years ago, and his attachment to Mr. Wickham was, to the last, so steady that in his will he particularly recommended it to me to promote his advancement in the best manner that his profession might allow, and, if he took orders, desired that a valuable family living might be his as soon as it became vacant. There was also a legacy of £1,000. His own father did not long survive mine, and within half a year from these events, Mr. Wickham wrote to inform me that, having finally resolved against taking orders, he hoped I should not think it unreasonable for him to expect some more immediate pecuniary advantage, in lieu of the preferment by which he could not be benefited. He had some intention, he added, of studying the law, and I must be aware that the interest of £1,000 would be a very insufficient support therein, I rather wished than believed him to be sincere, but, at any rate, was perfectly ready to accede to his proposal. I knew that Mr. Wickham ought not to be a clergyman. The business was therefore soon settled. He resigned or claimed to assistance in the church, were it possible that he could ever be in a situation to receive it, and accepted in return £3,000. All connection between us seemed now dissolved. I thought too ill of him to invite him to Pemberley or admit his society in town. In town, I believe, he chiefly lived, but his studying the law was a mere pretense, and being now free from all restraint, his life was a life of idleness and dissipation. For about three years I heard little of him, but on the decease of the incumbent of the living which had been designed for him, he applied to me again by letter for the presentation. His circumstances, he assured me, and I had no difficulty in believing it, were exceedingly bad. He had found the law a most unprofitable study, And was now absolutely resolved on being ordained, if I would present him to the living in question, of which he of which he trusted there could be little doubt, as he was well assured that I had no other person to provide for, and I could not have forgotten my revered father's intentions. You will hardly blame me for refusing to comply with this entreaty, or for resisting every repetition of it. His resentment was in proportion to the distress of his circumstances and he was doubtless as violent in his abuse of me to others, as in his reproaches to myself. After this period, every appearance of acquaintance was dropped. How he lived, I know not. But last summer he was again most painfully obtruded on my notice. I must now mention a circumstance which I would wish to forget myself, and which no obligation less than the present should induce me to unfold to any human being having said thus much, I feel no doubt of your secrecy. My sister, who is more than ten years my junior, was left to the guardianship of my mother's nephew, Colonel Fitzwilliam, and myself. About a year ago, she was taken from school, and an establishment formed for her in London. In Last summer, she went with the lady who presided over it to Ramsgate, and thither also went Mr Wickham, undoubtedly by design, there proved to have been a prior acquaintance between him and Mrs. Young, in whose character we were most unhappily deceived. And by her connivance and aid, he so far recommended himself to Georgiana, whose affectionate heart retained a strong impression of his kindness to her as a child, that she was persuaded to believe herself in love and to consent to an elopement. She was then but fifteen, which must be her excuse, and after stating her imprudence, I'm happy to add that I owed the knowledge of it to herself. I joined them unexpectedly a day or two before the intended elopement, and then Georgiana, unable to support the idea of grieving and offending a brother, whom she almost looked up to as a father, acknowledged the whole to me. You may imagine what I felt and how I acted. Regard for my sister's credit and feelings prevented any public exposure. But I wrote to Mr. Wickham, who left the place immediately, and Mrs. Young was of course removed from her charge. Mr. Wickham's chief object was unquestionably my sister's fortune, which is £30,000, I cannot help supposing that the hope of revenging himself on me was a strong inducement. His revenge would have been complete indeed. This, madam, is a faithful narrative of every event in which we have been concerned together, and if you do not absolutely reject it as false... You will, I hope, acquit me henceforth of cruelty towards Mr. Wickham. I know not in what manner, under what form of falsehood he has imposed on you, but his success is not perhaps to be wondered at. Ignorant, as you previously were, of everything concerning either, detection could not be in your power, and suspicion certainly not in your inclination. You may possibly wonder why all this was not told you last night, but I was not then master enough of myself to know what could or ought to be revealed. For the truth of everything here related, I can appeal more particularly to the testimony of Colonel Fitzwilliam, who from our near relationship in constant intimacy, and still more as one of the executors of my father's will, has been unavoidably acquainted with every particular of these transactions. If your abhorrence of me should make my assertions valueless, you cannot be prevented by the same cause from confiding in my cousin, and that there may be the possibility of consulting him. I shall endeavour to find some opportunity of putting this letter in your hands in the course of the morning. I will only add, God bless you. Fitzwilliam Darcy. Chapter 13. If Elizabeth when mr darcy gave her the letter did not expect it to contain a renewal of his offers she had formed no expectation at all of its contents but such as they were it may well be supposed how eagerly she went through them and what a contrariety of emotion they excited her feelings as she read were scarcely to be defined with amazement did she first understand that he believed any apology to be in his power and steadfastly she was, was she persuaded that he could have no explanation to give, which a just sense of shame would not conceal. With a strong prejudice against everything he might say, she began his account of what had happened at Netherfield. She read with an eagerness which hardly left her power of comprehension, and from impatience of knowing what the next sentence might bring, was incapable of attending to the sense of the one before her eyes. His belief of her sister's insensibility, she instantly resolved to be false. And his account of the real, the worst objections to the match made her too angry to have any wish of doing him justice. He expressed no regret for what he had done, which satisfied her. His style was not penitent, but haughty. It was all pride and insolence. But when this subject was succeeded by his account of Mr. Wickham, When she read, with somewhat clearer attention, a relation of events which, if true, must overthrow every cherished opinion of his worth, and which bore so alarming an affinity to his own history of himself, her feelings were yet more acutely painful and more difficult of definition. Astonishment, apprehension, and even horror oppressed her. She wished to discredit it entirely, repeatedly exclaiming, this must be false, this cannot be, this must be the grossest falsehood. And when she had gone through the whole letter, though scarcely knowing anything of the last page or two, put it hastily away, protesting she would not regard it, that she would never look in it again. In this perturbed state of mind, with thoughts that could rest on nothing, she walked on. But it would not do In half a minute the letter was unfolded again, and collecting herself as well as she could, she began again the mortifying perusal of all that related to Wickham, and commanded herself so far as to examine the meaning of every sentence. The account of his connection with the Pemberley family was exactly what he had related himself, and the kindness of the late Mr. Darcy, though she had not before known its extent, agreed equally well with his own words. So far, each recital confirmed the other. But when she came to the will, the difference was great. What Wickham had said of the living was fresh in her memory, and as she recalled his very words, it was impossible not to feel that there was gross duplicity on one side or the other. And, for a few moments, she flattered herself that her wishes did not err. But when she read and reread with the closest attention the particulars immediately following of Wickham's resigning all pretensions to the living, of his receiving in lieu so considerable a sum as £3,000, again she was forced to hesitate. She put down the letter, weighed every circumstance with what she meant to be impartiality, deliberated on the probability of each statement, but with little success. On both sides, it was only assertion. Again, she read on. But every line proved more clearly that the affair, which she had believed it impossible that any contrivance could so represent as to render Mr. Darcy's conduct in it less than infamous, was capable of a turn which must make him entirely blameless throughout the whole. The extravagance and general profligacy which he scrupled not to lay to Mr. Wickham's charge "'exceedingly shocked her, "'the more so as she could bring no proof of its injustice. she had never heard of him before his entrance "'into the Shire Militia, "'in which he had engaged at the persuasion of the young man "'who, on meeting him accidentally in town, "'had there renewed a slight slight acquaintance. "'Of his former way of life, "'nothing had been known in Hertfordshire "'but what he told himself. "'As to his real character, "'had information been in her power?' she had never felt a wish of inquiring. His countenance, voice, and manner had established him at once in the possession of every virtue. She tried to recollect some instance of goodness, some distinguished trait of integrity or benevolence that might rescue him from the attacks of Mr. Darcy, or at least by the predominance of virtue, atone for those casual errors under which she would endeavour to class what Mr. Darcy had described as the idleness and vice of many years' continuance. But no such recollection befriended her. She could see him instantly before her in every charm of air and address, but she could remember no more substantial good than the general approbation of the neighbourhood and the regard which his social powers had gained him in the mess. After pausing on this point a considerable while, she once more once more continued to read. But alas, the story which followed of his designs on Miss Darcy received some confirmation from what had passed between Colonel Fitzwilliam and herself only the morning before. And at last she was referred for the truth of every particular to Colonel Fitzwilliam himself from whom she had previously received the information of his near concern in all his cousin's affairs, and whose character she had no reason to question. At one time, she had almost resolved on applying to him, but the idea was checked by the awkwardness of the application, and at length wholly banished by the conviction that Mr. Darcy would never have hazarded such a proposal if he had not been well assured of his cousin's corroboration she perfectly remembered everything that had passed in conversation between Wickham and herself in their first evening at Mr. Phillips's. Many of his expressions were still fresh in her memory. She was now struck with the impropriety of such communications to a stranger and wondered it had escaped her before. She saw the indelicacy of putting himself forward as he had done, and the inconsistency of his professions with his conduct. She remembered that he had boasted of having no fear of seeing Mr. Darcy, that Mr. Darcy might leave the country, but that he should stand his ground. Yet he had avoided the Netherfield ball the very next week. She remembered also till that till the Netherfield family had quitted the country, he had told his story to no one but herself, but that after their removal, it had been everywhere discussed, that he had then had no reserves, no scruples in sinking Mr. Darcy's character, though he had assured her that respect for the father would always prevent his exposing the son. How differently did everything now appear in which he was concerned? His attentions to Miss King were now the consequence of views solely and hatefully mercenary, and the mediocrity of her fortune proved no longer the moderation of his wishes, but his eagerness to grasp at anything. His behaviour to herself could now have had had no tolerable motive. He had either been deceived with regard to her fortune, or had been gratifying his vanity by encouraging the preference which she believed she had most incautiously shown. Every lingering struggle in his favour grew fainter and fainter, and in farther justification of Mr. Darcy, she could not but allow that Mr. Bingley, when questioned by Jane, had long ago asserted his blamelessness in the affair that proud and repulsive as were his manners, she had never in the whole course of their acquaintance, an acquaintance which had latterly brought them much together and given her a sort of intimacy with his ways, seen anything that betrayed him to be unprincipled or unjust, anything that spoke of him irreligious or immoral habits. That among his own connections he was esteemed and valued, that even Wickham had allowed him merit as a brother, and that she had often heard him speak so affectionately of his sister as to prove him capable of some amiable feeling. That had his his actions been what Wickham represented them, so gross a violation of everything right could hardly have been concealed from the world, and that friendship between a person capable of it, and such an amiable man as Mr Bingley, was incomprehensible. She grew absolutely ashamed of herself. Of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling that she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd. "'How despicably have I acted!' she cried. "'I, who have prided myself on my discernment! "'I, who have valued myself on my abilities! "'Who have often disdained the generous candour of my sister "'and gratified my vanity in useless or blamable distrust! "'How humiliating is this discovery!' yet how just a humiliation. Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind. But vanity, not love, has been my folly. Pleased with the preference of one and offended by the neglect of the other, on the very beginning of our acquaintance, I have courted prepossession and ignorance and driven reason away where either were concerned. Till this moment, I never knew myself. From herself to Jane from Jane to Bingley, her thoughts were in a line which soon brought her to a recollection that Mr. Darcy's explanation there had appeared very insufficient, and she read it again. Widely different was the effect of a second perusal. How could she deny that credit to his assertions in one instance, which she had been obliged to give in the other? He declared himself to have been totally unsuspicious of her sister's attachment, and she could not help remembering what Charlotte's opinion had always been. Neither could she deny the justice of his description of Jane. She felt that Jane's feelings, though fervent, were little displayed, and that there was a constant complacency in her air and manner not often united with great sensibility. When she came to that part of the letter in which her family were mentioned, in terms of such mortifying yet merited reproach, her sense of shame was severe. The justice of the charge struck her too forcibly for denial and the circumstances to which he particularly alluded as having passed at the Netherfield ball and as confirming all his first disapprobation could not have made a stronger impression on his mind than on hers. The compliment to herself and her sister was not unfelt. It soothed, but it could not console her for the contempt which had been thus self-attracted by the rest of her family. And as she considered that Jane's disappointment had in fact been the work of her nearest relations and reflected how materially the credit of both must be hurt by such impropriety of conduct, she felt depressed beyond anything she had ever known before. After wandering along the lane for two hours, giving way to every variety of thought, reconsidering events, determining probabilities and reconciling herself as well as she could to a change so sudden and so important. Fatigue and a recollection of her long absence made her at length return home, and she entered the house with the wish of appearing cheerful as usual, and the resolution of repressing such reflections as must make her unfit for conversation. She was immediately told that the two gentlemen from Rosings had each called during her absence. Mr. Darcy only for a few minutes to take leave, that Colonel Fitzwilliam had been sitting with them at least an hour, hoping for her return, and almost resolving to walk after her till she could be found. Elizabeth could but just affect concern in missing him. She really rejoiced at it. Colonel Fitzwilliam was no longer an object. She could think only of her letter. Chapter 14. The two gentlemen left Rosings the next morning, and Mr. Collins, having been in waiting near the lodges to make them his parting obeisance, was able to bring home the pleasing intelligence of their appearing in very good health, and in as tolerable spirits as could be expected after the melancholy scene so lately gone through at Rosings. To Rosings he then hastened to console Lady Catherine and her daughter, and on his return brought back, with great satisfaction, a message from her ladyship, importing that she felt herself so dull as to make her very desirous of having them all to dine with her. Elizabeth could not see Lady Catherine without recollecting that, had she chosen it, she might by this time have been presented to her as her future niece. Nor could she think, without a smile, of what her ladyship's indignation would have been. What would she have said? How would she have behaved? Were questions with which she amused herself. Their first subject was the diminution of the Rosings' party. "'I assure you, I feel it exceedingly,' said Lady Catherine. "'I believe nobody feels the loss of friends so much as I do.' but I'm particularly attached to these young men and know them to be so much attached to me. They are excessively sorry to go, but so they always are. The dear Colonel rallied his spirits tolerably till just at last, but Darcy seemed to feel it most acutely, more, I think, than last year. His attachment to Rosings certainly increases. Mr. Collins had a compliment and an allusion to throw in here, which were kindly smiled on by the mother and daughter. Lady Catherine observed after dinner that Miss Bennet seemed out of spirits, and immediately accounting for it herself by supposing that she did not like to go home again so soon, she added, But if that is the case, you must write to your mother to beg that you may stay a little longer. Mrs. Collins will be very glad of your company, I'm sure. "'I am much obliged to your ladyship for your kind invitation,' replied Elizabeth, "'but it is not in my power to accept it. I must be in town next Saturday.' "'Why, at that rate, you will have only been here six weeks. "'I expected you to stay two months. "'I told Mrs. Collins so before you came. "'There can be no occasion for your going so soon. "'Mrs. Bennet could certainly spare you for another fortnight.' but my father cannot. He wrote last week to hurry my return. Oh, your father of course may spare you if your mother can. Daughters are never of so much consequence to a father. And if you will stay another month complete, it will be in my power to take one of you as far as London, for I'm going there early in June for a week. And as Dawson does not object to the barouche box, There will be very good room for one of you and indeed if the weather should happen to be cool i should not object to taking you both as you are neither of you large you are all kindness madam but i believe we must abide by our original plan lady catherine seemed resigned mrs collins you must send a servant with them you know I always speak my mind, and I cannot bear the idea of two young women traveling post by themselves. It is highly improper. You must contrive to send somebody. I have the greatest dislike in the world to that sort of thing. Young women should always be properly guarded and attended according to a situation in life. When my niece Georgiana went to Ramsgate last summer, I made a point of her having two men servants go with her. Miss Darcy, the daughter of Mr. Darcy of Pemberley, and Lady Anne, could not have appeared with propriety in a different manner. I am excessively attentive to all those things. You must send John with the young ladies, Mrs. Collins. I am glad it occurred to me to mention it, for it really would be discreditable to you to let them go alone.' My uncle is to send a servant for us. Oh, your uncle? He keeps a man's servant, does he? I'm very glad you have somebody who thinks of those things. Where shall you change horses? Oh, Bromley, of course. If you mention my name at the bell, you will be attended to. Lady Catherine had many other questions to ask respecting their journey. And as she did not answer them all herself, attention was necessary which Elizabeth believed to be lucky for her or with a mind so occupied she might have forgotten where she was. Reflection must be reserved for solitary hours. Whenever she was alone, she gave way to it as the greatest relief. And Not a day went by without a solitary walk in which she might indulge in all the delight of unpleasant recollections. Mr. Darcy's letter, she was in a fair way of soon knowing by heart. She studied every sentence, and her feelings towards its writer were at times widely different. When she remembered the style of his address, she was still full of indignation. But when she considered how unjustly she had condemned and upbraided him, her anger was turned against herself, and his disappointed feelings became the object of compassion. His attachment excited gratitude, his general character respect, but she could not approve him nor could she for a moment repent her refusal, or feel the slightest inclination ever to see him again. In her own past behaviour, there was a constant source of vexation and regret, and in the unhappy defects of her family, a subject of yet heavier chagrin. They were hopeless of remedy. Her father, contented with laughing at them, would never exert himself to restrain the wild giddiness of his youngest daughters, and her mother, with manners so far from right herself, was entirely insensible of the evil. Elizabeth had frequently united with Jane in an endeavour to check the imprudence of Catherine and Lydia, but while they were supported by their mother's indulgence, what chance could there be of improvement? Catherine, weak-spirited, irritable, and completely under Lydia's guidance, had always been affronted by their advice, and Lydia, self-willed and careless, would scarcely give them a hearing. They were ignorant, idle, and vain. While there was an officer in Meryton, they would flirt with him, and while Meryton was within a walk of Longbourn, they would be going there for ever. Anxiety on Jane's behalf was another prevailing concern, and Mr. Darcy's explanation, by restoring Bingley to all her former good opinion, heightened the sense of what Jane had lost. His affection was proved to have been sincere. And his conduct cleared of all blame, unless any could attach to the implicitness of his confidence in his friend. How grievous, then, was the thought that, of a situation so desirable in every respect, so replete with advantage, so promising for happiness, Jane had been deprived by the folly and indecorum of her own family. When to these recollections was added the development of Wickham's character, it may be easily believed that the happy spirits which had seldom been depressed before were now so much affected as to make it almost impossible for her to appear tolerably cheerful. Their engagements at Rosings were as frequent during the last week of her stay as they had been at first. The very last evening was spent there, and her ladyship again inquired minutely into the particulars of their journey, gave them directions as to the best method of packing, I was so urgent on the necessity of placing gowns in only the right way that Maria thought herself obliged on her return to undo all the work of the morning and pack her trunk afresh. When they parted, Lady Catherine, with great condescension, wished them a good journey and invited them to come to Huntsford again next year, and Mr. Berg exerted herself so far as to curtsy and hold out her hand to both. Chapter Fifteen On Saturday morning, Elizabeth and Mr. Collins met for breakfast a few minutes before the others appeared, and he took the opportunity of paying the parting civilities which he deemed indispensably necessary. "'I know not, Miss Elizabeth.' said he, whether Mrs. Collins has yet expressed her sense of your kindness in coming to us. But I am very certain you will not leave the house without receiving her thanks for it. The favour of your company has been much felt, I assure you. We know how little that is to tempt any one to our humble abode. Our plain manner of living, our small rooms, and few domestics, and the little we see of the world must make Huntsford extremely dull to a young lady like yourself. I hope you will believe us grateful for the condescension and that we have done everything in our power to prevent your spending your time unpleasantly. Elizabeth was eager with her thanks and assurances of happiness. She had spent six weeks with great enjoyment and the pleasure of being with Charlotte and the kind attention she had received, received must make her feel the obliged. Mr. Collins was gratified and with a more smiling solemnity replied, it gives me the greatest pleasure to hear that you have passed your time not disagreeably. We have certainly done our best, and most fortunately having it in our power to introduce you to very superior society and, from a connection with Rosings, the frequent means of varying the humble home scene. I think we may flatter ourselves that your Hunsford visit cannot have been entirely irksome. Our situation with regard to Lady Catherine's family is indeed the sort of extraordinary advantage and blessing which few can boast. You see on what a footing we are. You see how continually we are engaged there. In truth, I must acknowledge that, with all the disadvantages of this humble parsonage, I should not think anyone abiding in it an object of compassion while they are sharers of our intimacy at Rosings. Words were insufficient for the elevation of his feelings and he was obliged to walk about the room, while Elizabeth tried to unite civility and truth in a few short sentences. You may, in fact, carry a very favourable report of us into Hertfordshire, dear cousin. I flatter myself, at least, that you will be able to do so. Lady Catherine's great attention to Mrs. Collins you have been a daily witness of, and altogether I trust It does not appear that your friend has drawn an unfortunate, but on that point it will be as well to be silent. Only let me assure you, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that I can from my heart most cordially wish you equal felicity in marriage. My dear Charlotte and I have but one mind and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us. We seem to have been designed for each other. Elizabeth could safely say that it was a great happiness where that was the case, and with equal sincerity could add that she firmly believed and rejoiced in his domestic comforts. She was not sorry, however, to have the recital of them interrupted by the entrance of the lady from whom they sprung. Poor Charlotte! It was melancholy to leave her to such society. But she had chosen it with her eyes open, and though evidently regretting that her visitors were to go, she did not seem to ask for compassion. Her home and her housekeeping, her parish and her poultry, and all their dependent concerns, had not yet lost their charms. At length the chaise arrived, the trunks were fastened on, the parcels placed within, and it was pronounced to be ready. After an affectionate parting between the friends, Elizabeth was attended to the carriage by Mr. Collins And as they walked down the garden, he was commissioning her with his best respects to all her family, not forgetting his thanks for the kindness he had received at Longbourn in the winter, and his compliments to Mr and Mrs Gardiner, though unknown. He then handed her in, Maria followed, and the door was on the point of being closed, when he suddenly reminded them, with some consternation, that they had hitherto forgotten to leave any message for the ladies at Rosings. But... He added, you will of course wish to have your humble respects delivered to them with your grateful thanks for their kindness to you while you have been here. Elizabeth made no objection. The door was then allowed to be shut and the carriage drove off. Good gracious, cried Maria after a few minutes silence. It seems but a day or two since we first came. And yet how many things have happened? "Ah, Great many indeed, said her companion with a sigh we have dined nine times at Rosings, besides drinking tea there twice. How much I shall have to tell, Elizabeth privately added, and how much I shall have to conceal. Their journey was performed without much conversation or any alarm, and within four hours of their leaving Hunsford, they reached Mr. Gardiner's house, where they were to remain a few days. Jane looked well, and Elizabeth had little opportunity of studying her spirits amidst the various engagements which the kindness of her aunt had reserved for them, but Jane was to go home with her, and at Longbourn there would be leisure enough for observation. It was not without an effort, meanwhile, that she could wait even for Longbourn before she told her sister of Mr. Darcy's proposals. To know that she had the power of revealing what would so exceedingly astonish Jane, and must, at the same time, so highly gratify whatever of her own vanity she had not yet been able to reason away, was such a temptation to openness as nothing could have conquered but the state of indecision in which she remained as to the extent of what she should communicate, and her fear, if she once entered on the subject, of being hurried into repeating something of Bingley which might only grieve her sister father. Chapter 16. It was the second week in May in which the three young ladies set out together from Gracechurch Street for the town of in Hertfordshire. And as they drew near the appointed inn where Mr. Bennett's carriage was to meet them, they quickly perceived, in token of the coachman's punctuality, both Kitty and Lydia looking out of a dining room upstairs. These two girls had been above an hour in the place, happily employed in visiting an opposite milliner, watching the sentinel on guard and dressing a salad and a cucumber. After welcoming their sisters, they triumphantly displayed a table set out with such cold meat as an inn larder usually affords, exclaiming, "Is not this nice? Is this not this an agreeable surprise?" And we mean to treat you all," added Lydia. "But you must lend us the money, for we have just spent ours at the shop out there." Then, showing her purchases, "Look here, I have brought this bought this bonnet. I do not think it is very pretty, but I thought I might as well buy it as not." "'I shall pull it to pieces as soon as I get home "'and see if I can make it up any better.' "'And when her sisters abused it as ugly,' "'she added, with perfect unconcern, "'Oh, but there were two or three much uglier in the shop, "'and when I have bought some prettier coloured satin "'to trim it with fresh, I think it will be very tolerable. "'Besides, it will not much signify what one wears this summer "'after the Shire have left Meriton, "'and they are going in a fortnight.' "'Are they indeed?' "'cried Elizabeth with the greatest satisfaction. "'They are going to be encamped near Brighton, "'and I do so want Papa to take us all there for the summer. "'It would be such a delicious scheme, "'and I dare say would hardly cost anything at all. "'Mama would like to go too, of all things. "'Only think what a miserable summer else we shall have.' "'Yes,' thought Elizabeth, "'that would be a delightful scheme indeed, "'and completely do for us at once. "'Good heaven!' Brighton, and a whole campful of off-soldiers to us, who have been overset already by one poor regiment of militia and the monthly balls of Meryton. Now, I have got some news for you, said Lydia, as they sat down to table. What do you think? It is excellent news, capital news, and about a certain person that we all like. Jane and Elizabeth looked at each other, and the waiter was told that he need not stay. Lydia laughed and said, "'Aye, that is just like your formality and discretion. You thought the waiter must not hear, as if he cared. I dare say he often hears worse things said than I am going to say. But he is an ugly fellow. I'm glad he is gone. I never saw such a long chin in my life. Well, but now for my news. It is about dear Wickham. Too good for the waiter, is, is not it? There is no danger of Wickham's marrying Mary King. There's for you.' She's gone down to her uncle at Liverpool, gone to stay. Wickham is safe. And Mary King is safe, added Elizabeth, safe from a connection imprudent as to fortune. She's a great fool for going away, if she liked him. But I hope that there is no strong attachment on either side, said Jane. I'm sure there is not on his. I will answer for it. He never cared three straws about her. Who could about such a nasty little freckled thing? Elizabeth was shocked to think that, however incapable of such coarseness of expression herself, the coarseness of the sentiment was little other than her own breast had formerly harboured and fancied liberal. As soon as all had ate, and the elder ones paid, the carriage was ordered, and after some contrivance the whole party, with all their boxes, work bags and parcels, and the unwelcome addition of Kitty's and Lydia's purchases, were seated in it. "'How nicely we are crammed in!' cried Lydia. I'm glad I bought my bonnet, if it is only for the fun of having another bandbox, Well, now let us be quite comfortable and snug, and talk and laugh all the way home. And in the first place, let us hear what has happened to you all since you went away. Have you seen any pleasant men? Have you had any flirting? I was in great hopes that one of you would have got a husband before you came back. Jane will be quite an old maid soon, I declare. She is almost three and twenty. "'Lord, how ashamed I should be of not being married before three and twenty! "'My Aunt Phillips wants you so to get husbands. "'You can't think!' "'She said Lizzie had better have taken Mr. Collins, "'but I do not think there would have been any fun in it. "'Lord, how I should like to be married before any of you, "'and then I would chaperone you about to all the balls!' Dear me, we had such a good piece of fun the other day at Colonel Forster's. Kitty and me were to spend the day there, and Mrs Forster promised to have a little dance in the evening. By the by, Mrs Forster and me are such friends. And so she asked the two Harringtons to come, but Harriet was ill, and so Pen was forced to come by herself. And then, what do you think we did? We just dressed up Chamberlain in a woman's clothes, on purpose to pass for a lady. Only think, what fun!' Not a soul knew of it, but Colonel and Mrs. Forster, and Kitty, and me, except my aunt, for we were forced to borrow one of her gowns, and you cannot imagine how well he looked. When Denny, and Wickham, and Pratt, and two or three more of the men came in, they did not know him in the least. Lord, how I laughed! And so did Mrs. Forster. I thought I should have died, and that made the men suspect something, and then they soon found out what was the matter. With such kind of histories in the, of their parties and good jokes, did Lydia, assisted by Kitty's hints and additions, endeavour to amuse her companions all the way to Longbourn. Elizabeth listened as little as she could, but there's no escaping the frequent mention of Wickham's name. The reception at home was most kind. Mrs. Bennet rejoiced to see Jane in undiminished beauty, and more than once during dinner did Mr. Bennet say voluntarily to Elizabeth, I'm glad you are come back, Lizzie. Their party in the dining room was large, for almost all the Lucases came to meet Maria and hear the news, and various were the subjects which occupied them. Lady Lucas was inquiring of Maria across the table after the welfare and poultry of her eldest daughter. Mrs. Bennet was doubly engaged, on one hand collecting an account of the present fashions from Jane, who sat some way below her, and on the other retailing them all to the younger Miss Lucases. And Lydia, in a voice rather louder than any other person's, was enumerating the various pleasures of the morning to anybody who would hear her. "'Oh, Mary!' said she. "'I wish you had gone with us, for we had such fun. "'As we went along, Kitty and me drew up all the blinds "'and pretended there was nobody in the coach. "'And I should have gone also all the way if Kitty had not been sick. "'And when we got to the George, I do think we behaved very handsomely, "'for we treated the other three with the nicest cold luncheon in the world. "'And if you would have gone, we would have treated you too.' And then, when we came away, it was such fun. I thought we never should have got into the coach. I was ready to die of laughter. And then we were so merry all the way home. We talked and laughed so loud that anybody might have heard us ten miles off. To this, Mary very gravely replied Far be it from me, my dear sister, to depreciate such pleasures. They would doubtless be congenial with the generality of the female minds but I confess they would have no charms for me. I should infinitely prefer a book. But of this answer, Lydia heard not a word. She seldom listened to anybody for more than half a minute and never attended to Mary at all. In the afternoon, Lydia was urgent with the rest of the girls to walk to Meryton and to see how everybody went on, but Elizabeth steadily opposed the scheme. It should not be said that the Miss Bennets could not off. It should not be said that the Miss Bennets could not be at home half a day before they are in pursuit of the officers. There was another reason, too, for her opposition. She dreaded seeing Wickham again, and was resolved to avoid it as long as possible. The comfort to her of the regiment's approaching removal was indeed beyond expression. In a fortnight they were to go, and once gone, she hoped there could be nothing more to plague her on his account. She had not been many hours at home before she found that the Brighton scheme, of which Lydia had given them a hint at the inn, was under frequent discussion between her parents. Elizabeth saw directly that her father had not the smallest intention of yielding, but his answers were at the same time so vague and equivocal that her mother, though often disheartened, had never yet despaired of succeeding at last. Chapter 17. Elizabeth's impatience to acquaint Jane with what had happened could no longer be overcome, and at length resolving to suppress every particular in which her sister was concerned and preparing her to be surprised, she related to her the next morning the chief of the scene between Mr. Darcy and herself. Miss Bennet's astonishment was soon lessened by the strong sisterly partiality which made any admiration of Elizabeth appear perfectly natural, and all surprise was shortly lost in other feelings. She was sorry that Mr. Darcy should have delivered his sentiments in a manner so little suited to recommend them, but was still, but still more was she grieved for the unhappiness which her sister's refusal must have given him. "'His being so sure of succeeding was wrong,' said she, and certainly ought not to have appeared. But consider how much it must increase his disappointment. (laughs) Indeed, replied Elizabeth, I am heartily sorry for him, but he has other feelings which will probably soon drive away his regard for me. You do not blame me, however, for refusing him. Blame you? Oh, no. But you blame me for having spoken so warmly of Wickham. No, I did not know that you were wrong in saying what you did but you will know it when I have told you what happened the very next day. She then spoke of the letter, repeating the whole of its contents as far as they concerned George Wickham. What a stroke this was for poor Jane, who would willingly have gone through the world without believing that so much wickedness existed in the whole race of mankind as was here collected in one individual. Nor was Darcy's vindication, though grateful to her feelings, capable of consoling her for such discovery. Most earnestly did she labour to prove the probability of error, and seek to clear one without involving the other. This will not do, said Elizabeth. You never will be able to make both of them good for anything. Take your choice, but you must be satisfied with only one. There is but such a quantity of merit between them, just enough to make one good sort of man, and of late it has been shifting about pretty much. For my part, I am inclined to believe it all Mr. Darcy's, but you shall do as you choose. "'some time, however, before a smile could be extorted, extorted from Jane. "'I do not know, when I have been more shocked,' said she. "'Wickham, so very bad? It is almost past belief. And "'Poor Mr. Darcy! Dear Lizzie, only consider what he must have suffered. "'Such a disappointment! And with the knowledge of your ill opinion, too, "'and having to relate such a thing of his sister, "'it is really too distressing. I am sure you must feel it so.' Oh, no, my regret and compassion are all done away by seeing you so full of both. I know you will do him such ample justice that I am growing every moment more unconcerned and indifferent. Your profusion makes me saving, and if you lament over him much longer, my heart will be as light as a feather. Poor Wickham. There is such an expression of goodness in his countenance, such an openness and gentleness in his manner. There certainly was some great mismanagement in the education of those two young men, one has got all the goodness, and the other all the appearance of it. I never thought, Mr. Darcy, so deficient in the appearance of it as you used to do. And yet I meant meant to be uncommonly clever in taking so decided a dislike to him without any reason. It is such a spur to one's genius, such an opening for wit to have a dislike of that kind. One may be continually abusive without saying anything just, but one cannot always be laughing at a man without now and then stumbling on something witty. Lizzie, when you first read that letter, I am sure you could not treat the matter as you do now. Indeed, I could not. I was uncomfortable enough. I was very uncomfortable, I may say unhappy, and with no one to speak of what I felt, no Jane to comfort me and say that I had not been so very weak and vain and nonsensical as I knew I had. Oh, how I wanted you. How unfortunate that you should have used such very strong expressions in speaking of Wickham to Mr. Darcy, for now they do appear wholly undeserved. Certainly, but the misfortune of speaking with bitterness is a most natural consequence of the prejudices I had been encouraging. There is one point on which I want your advice. I want to be told whether I ought, or ought not, to make our acquaintance in general understand Wickham's character. Miss Bennet paused a little and then replied, Surely there can be no occasion for exposing him so dreadfully. What is your own opinion? That it ought not to be attempted. Mr. Darcy has not authorised me to make his communication public. On the contrary, every particular relative to his sister was meant to be kept as much as possible to myself. And if I endeavour to undeceive people as to the rest of his conduct, who will believe me? "'The general prejudice against Mr. Darcy is so violent "'that it would be the death of half the good people in Meryton "'to attempt to place him in an amiable amiable light. "'I am not equal to it. "'Wickham will soon be gone, "'and therefore it will not signify to anybody here what he really is. "'Sometime hence it will all be found out, "'and then we may laugh at their stupidity and not knowing it before. "'At present I will say nothing about it. "'You are quite right. "'To have his errors made public might ruin him forever.' He is now perhaps sorry for what he has done, anxious to re-establish a character. He must not make him desperate. The tumult of Elizabeth's mind was allayed by this conversation. She had got rid of two of the secrets which had weighed on her for a fortnight, and was certain of a willing listener in Jane, whenever she might wish to talk again of either. But there was still something lurking behind, of which prudence forbade the disclosure. She dared not relate the other half of Mr. Darcy's letter, nor explain to her sister how sincerely she had been valued by his friend. Here was knowledge in which no one could partake, and she was sensible that nothing less than a perfect understanding between the parties could justify her in throwing off this last encumbrance of mystery. And then, said she, if that very improbable event should ever take place, I shall merely be able to tell what Bingley may tell, in a much more agreeable manner himself. The liberty of communication cannot be mine till it has lost all its value. She was now on being settled at home at leisure to observe the real state of her sister's spirits. Jane was not happy. She still cherished a very tender affection for Bingley. Having never even fancied herself in love before, her regard had all the warmth of first attachment. And from her age and disposition, greater steadiness than first attachments often boast, and so fervently did she value his remembrance and prefer him to every other man that all her good sense and all her attention to the feelings of her friends were requisite to check the indulgence of those regrets, which must have been injurious to her own health and their tranquility. Well, Lizzie, said Mrs. Bennet one day, what is your opinion now of this sad business of Jane's? For my part, I'm determined never to speak of it again to anybody. I told my sister Philip so the other day, but I cannot find out that Jane saw anything of him in London. Well, he is a very undeserving young man, and I do not suppose there is the least chance in the world of her ever getting him now. There is no talk of his coming to Netherfield again in the summer, and I have inquired of everybody too who is likely to know. I do not believe that he will ever live at Netherfield any more. Oh well, it is just as he chooses. "'Nobody wants him to come, though I shall always say "'that he used my daughter extremely ill, "'and if I was her, I would not have put up with it. "'Well, my comfort is, I am sure, Jane will die of a broken heart, "'and then he will be sorry for what he has done.' "'But as Elizabeth could not receive comfort from any such expectation, "'she made no no answer. "'Well, Lizzie,' continued her mother soon afterwards, "'and so the Collinses live very comfortable, do they?' Well, well, I only hope it will last. what sort of table do they keep? Charlotte is an excellent manager, I dare say. If she is half as sharp as her mother, she is saving enough. There is nothing extravagant in their housekeeping, I dare say. No, nothing at all. A great deal of good management depend upon it. Yes, yes, they will take care not to outrun their income. They will never be distressed for money. Well, much good may it do them. And so I suppose they often talk of having long-born when your father is dead? They look upon it quite as their own, I dare say, whenever that happens. It was a subject which they could not mention before me. No, it would have been strange if they had, but I make no doubt they often talk of it between themselves. Well, if they can be easy with an estate that is not lawfully their own, so much the better. I should be ashamed of having one that was only entailed on me. Chapter 18 The first week of their return was soon gone. The second began. It was the last of the regiment's stay in Meryton, and all the young ladies in the neighborhood were drooping apace. The dejection was almost universal. The elder Miss Bennetts alone were still able to eat, drink and sleep and pursue the usual course of their employments. Very frequently were they reproached for this insensibility by Kitty and Lydia, whose own misery was extreme and who could not comprehend such hard-heartedness in any of the family. Good heaven, what is to become of us? What are we to do? They would often exclaim in the bitterness of woe. How can you be smiling so, Lizzie? Their affectionate mother shared all their grief. She remembered what she had herself endured on a similar occasion five and twenty years ago. I'm sure, said she, I cried for two days together when Colonel Miller's regiment went away. I thought I should have broke my heart. I'm sure I shall break mine, said Lydia. If one could but go to Brighton, observed Mrs. Bennet. Oh, yes, if one could but go to Brighton, but Papa is so disagreeable. A little sea-bathing would set me up forever. And my Aunt Phillips is sure it would do me a great deal of good, added Kitty. Such were the kind of lamentations resounding perpetually through Longbourn House. Elizabeth tried to be diverted by them, but all sense of pleasure was lost in shame. She felt anew the justice of Mr. Darcy's objections and never had she before been so much disposed to pardon his interference in the views of his friend. But the gloom of Lydia's prospect was shortly cleared away for she received an invitation from Mrs. Forster, the wife of the colonel of the regiment, to accompany her to Brighton. This invaluable friend was a very young woman and very lately married. A resemblance in good humour and good spirits had recommended her and Lydia to each other. And out of their three months acquaintance, they had been intimate too. The rapture of Lydia on this occasion, her adoration of Mrs. Forster, the delight of Mrs. Bennet and the mortification of Kitty are scarcely to be described. Wholly inattentive to her sister's feelings, Lydia flew about the house in restless ecstasy, calling for everyone's congratulations and laughing and talking with more violence than ever, while the luckless kitty continued in the parlour, repining at her fate in terms as unreasonable as her accent was peevish. I cannot see why Mrs. Forster should not ask me as well as Lydia, said she, though I am not her particular friend. I have just as much right to be asked as she has and more too, for I'm two years older. In vain did Elizabeth attempt to be re- to reasonable and Jane to make her resigned. As for Elizabeth herself, this invitation was so far from exciting in her the same feelings as in her mother and Lydia, that she considered it as the death warrant of all possibility of common sense for the latter. And detestable as such a stu- step must make her, were it known she could not help secretly advising her father not to let her go. She represented to him all the improprieties of Lydia's general behaviour, the little advantage she could derive from the friendship of a woman such as Mrs. Forster, and the probability of her being yet more imprudent with such a companion at Brighton, where the temptations must be greater than at home. He heard her attentively and then said, Lydia will never be easy till she has exposed herself in some public place or other, and we can never expect her to do it with so little expense or inconvenience to her family as under the present circumstances. "'If you were aware,' said Elizabeth, "'of the very great disadvantage to us all, which must arise from the public notice of Lydia's unguarded and imprudent manner, nay, which has already arisen from it, I am sure you would judge differently in the affair.' "'Already arisen?' repeated Mr. Bennet. "'What, has she frightened away some of your lovers?' Poor little Lizzie. Do not be cast down. Such squeamish youths as cannot bear to be connected with a little absurdity are not worth a regret. Come, let me see the list of the pitiful fellows who have been kept aloof by Lydia's folly. Indeed, you are mistaken. I have no such injuries to resent. It is not of peculiar but of general evils which I am now complaining. Our importance, our respectability in the world must be affected by the wild volatility, the assurance and disdain of all restraint which mark Lydia's character. Excuse me, for I must speak plainly. If you, my dear father, will not take the trouble of checking her exuberant spirits and of teaching her that her present pursuits are not to be the business of her life, she will soon be beyond the reach of amendment. Her character will be fixed and she will at 16 be the most determined flirt that ever made herself and her family ridiculous. A flirt, too, in the worst and meanest degree of flirtation, without any attraction beyond youth and a tolerable person, and from the ignorance and emptiness of her mind, wholly unable to ward off any portion of that universal contempt which her rage for admiration will excite. In this danger Kitty is also comprehended, She will follow wherever Lydia leads, vain, ignorant, idle, and absolutely uncontrolled. Oh, my dear father, can you suppose it possible that they will not be censured and despised wherever they are known, and that their sisters will not be often involved in the disgrace? Mr. Bennet saw that her whole heart was in the subject, and affectionately taking her hand, said in reply, Do not make yourself uneasy, my love. Wherever you and Jane are known, you must be respected and valued. You will not appear to less advantage for having a couple of, or may I say, three very silly sisters. We shall have no peace at Longbourn if Lydia does not go to Brighton. Let her go then. Colonel Forster is a sensible man and will keep her out of any real mischief. And she is luckily too poor to be an object of prey to anybody. At Brighton, she will be of less importance even as a common flirt than she has been here. The officers will find women better worth their notice Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. At any rate, she cannot grow many degrees worse without authorizing us to lock her up for the rest of her life. With this answer, Elizabeth was forced to be content. But her own opinion continued the same, and she left him disappointed and sorry. It was not in her nature, however, to increase her vexations by dwelling on them. She was confident of having performed her duty and to fret over unavoidable evils or augment them by anxiety was no part of her disposition. Had Lydia and her mother known the substance of her conference with her father, their indignation would hardly have found expression in their united volubility. In Lydia's imagination, a visit to Brighton comprised every possibility of earthly happiness. She saw with the creative eye of fancy the streets of that gay bathing place covered with officers. She saw herself the object of attention to tens and to scores of them at present unknown. She saw all the glories of the camp, its tents stretched forth in beauteous uniformity of lines, crowded with the young and the gay and dazzling with scarlet. And to complete the view, she saw herself seated beneath a tent, tenderly flirting with at least six officers at once. Had she known that her sister sought to tear her from such prospects and such realities as these, what would have been her sensations? They could have been understood only by her mother, who might have felt nearly the same. Lydia's going to Brighton was all that consoled her for the melancholy conviction of her husband's never intending to go there himself but they were entirely ignorant of what had passed and their raptures continued with little intermission to the very day of Lydia's leaving home. Elizabeth was now to see Mr. Wickham for the last time. Having been frequently in company with him since her return, agitation was pretty well over, the agitations of former partiality entirely so. She even learned to detect, in the very gentleness which had first delighted her, an affectation and a sameness to disgust and weary. In his present behaviour to herself, moreover, she had a fresh source of displeasure, for the inclination he soon testified of renewing those attentions which had marked the early part of their acquaintance could only serve, after what had since passed, to provoke her. She lost all concern for him finding herself thus selected as the object of such idle and frivolous gallantry, and while she steadily repressed it, could not but feel the reproof contained in his believing that, however long and for whatever cause, his attentions had been withdrawn, her vanity would be gratified and her preference secured at any time by their renewal. On the very last day of the regiment's remaining in Meryton, he dined with the others of the officers at Longbourn, and so little was Elizabeth disposed to part from him in good humour that on his making some inquiry as to the manner in which her time had passed at Hunsford, she mentioned Colonel Fitzwilliams and Mr. Darcy's having both spent three weeks at Rosings and asked him if he were acquainted with the former. He looked surprised. Displeased, alarmed, but with a moment's recollection and a returning smile, replied that he had formerly seen him often, and after observing that he was a very gentlemanlike man, asked her how she had liked him. Her answer was warmly in his favour. With an air of indifference, he soon afterwards added, How long did you say that he was at Rosings? Nearly three weeks. And you saw him frequently? Yes, almost every day. His manners are very different from his cousins. Yes, very different. But I think Mr Darcy improves on acquaintance. Indeed, cried Wickham, with a look which did not escape her. And pray, may I ask? But checking himself he added in a gayer tone, is it in address that he improves? Has he deigned to add aught of civility to his ordinary style? For I dare not hope, he continued in a lower and more serious tone, that he is improved in essentials. Oh no, said Elizabeth, In essentials, I believe he is very much what he ever was. While she spoke, Wickham looked as if scarcely knowing whether to rejoice over her words or to distrust their meaning. There was a something in her countenance which made him listen with an apprehensive and anxious attention while she added, When I said that he improved on acquaintance, I did not mean that either his mind or manners were in a state of improvement, but that from knowing him better, his disposition was better understood. Wickham's alarm now appeared in a heightened complexion and agitated look. For a few minutes he was silent. Till, shaking off his embarrassment, he turned to her again, and said in the gentlest of accents, "'You, who so well know my feelings towards Mr. Darcy, will readily comprehend how sincerely I must rejoice that he is wise enough to assume even the appearance of what is right. His pride in that direction may be of service, if not to himself, to many others.' for it must deter him from such foul misconduct as I have suffered by. I only fear that the sort of cautiousness, 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 which you, I imagine, have been, to which you, I imagine, have been alluding, is merely adopted on his visits to his aunt, of whose good opinions and judgment he stands much in awe. His fear of her has always operated, I know, when they were together, and a good deal is to be imputed to his wish of forwarding the match with Mr. Berg which I'm certain he has very much at heart. Elizabeth could not repress a smile at this, but she answered only by a slight inclination of the head. She saw that he wanted to engage her on the old subject of his grievances, and she was in no humour to indulge him. The rest of the evening passed with the appearance on his side of usual cheerfulness, but with no farther attempt to distinguish Elizabeth. They parted at last with mutual civility and possibly a mutual desire of never meeting again. When the party broke up, Lydia returned with Mrs. Forster to Meryton, from whence they were to set out early the next morning. The separation between her and her family was rather noisy than pathetic. Kitty was the only one who shed tears, but she did weep from vexation and envy. Mrs. Bennet was diffuse in her good wishes for the felicity of her daughter, and impressive in her injunctions that she would not miss the opportunity of enjoying herself as much as possible. Advice, which there was every reason to believe would be attended to, And in the clamorous happiness of Lydia herself in bidding farewell, the more gentle adieus of her sisters were uttered without being heard. This episode of the Lit English English Lit Podcast was sponsored by Mrs. Wu Domination Incorporated. Mrs Wu specializes in offering opportunities for, and participating in, mayhem and maleficence at unparalleled value. From Buenos Aires to Beijing, from San Marcos to Sydney, you're never far from the long arm of Mrs Wu and her associates. Special thanks, too, to our principal, Mr Adam Dawson, I don't know if this is common knowledge, but uh, Mr. Dawson recently auditioned to be a backup guitarist for the Rolling Stones, and he felt really good about his audition and his chances of making the band. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us. We seem to have been designed for each other. Thanks for listening. See you next time.